Chapter sixty nine of The Wanderer or Female Difficulties. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Wanderer or Female Difficulties by Fanny Burney. Chapter sixty nine. Gabriella, who had thus long been detained from her business, because the lady, whose orders she had obeyed, had either forgotten that those orders had been issued, or deemed that to wait in an ante-room was the natural fate of an haberdasher. Now, entering the shop, saw, with no little surprise, Juliet in close conference with an old bean, who was evidently disconcerted, and embarrassed by the interruption. Remitting, however, all inquiry, and gracefully declining a chair, which was respectfully offered to her by Sir Jasper, who imagined her to be some customer, she silently employed herself in examining and arranging her unpinned, unrolled, and tumbled ribbons. The surprise of the baronet now became greater than her own. No plainness of attire could hide, from his scrutinizing eye, a certain native taste with which her habiliments, however simple, were put on nor could even the bandbox which she held in her hand, and which he had supposed to be there from some accident, disguise the elegance of her motions, or conceal her lofty mien. When, therefore, he discovered that she was at home, and that she was an haberdasher, he looked from one lovely companion to the other, with reverential wonder, and uplifted hands. Long profoundly impressed by the beauty of Juliet, by her merit, her youth, her modest yet dignified demeanour, in the midst of all the difficulties of distressed poverty, he was now as powerfully affected by the appearance of Gabriella, whose noble, yet never haughty manners, joined to a tragic expression of constant woe in her countenance, rendered her, if not as attractive, at least as interesting as her friend. A general pause ensued, till Gabriella, fearing that she was obtrusive, retired to the inner room. Sir Jasper, wide opening his eyes, and again leaning forward, to hear more distinctly, exclaimed, "'Who is that fine creature? What a majestic port! Yet how sweet a look! She awes while she invites. Who is she?' Juliet felt enchanted. She even felt exalted by a testimony so impartial and so honourable, to the merit of her friend, and she eagerly answered, "'Your admiration, sir, does honour to your discernment. Her excellencies, her high qualities, and spotless conduct, might make the proudest Englishman exult to own her for his countrywoman, though the lowest Frenchman would dispute, even at the risk of his life, the honour of her birth. Sprung from one of the first houses of Europe, a house not more ancient in its origin than renowned for its virtues, allied to a family the most illustrious, whose military glory has raised it to the highest ranks in the state, herself an ornament to that birth, an honour to that alliance, she sustains a reverse of fortune which reduces her from every indulgence to every privation, with a calm courage that keeps her always mistress of herself, and enables her to combat evil by labour, 
misery by industry, and which never has failed her, but in a personal, bosom affliction, that would equally have shaken her fortitude, in the brightest splendour of prosperity. Hold, hold, you little torment, interrupted Sir Jasper, you don't consider what an artillery my wanton sprites are bringing upon me. My poor gouty fingers are so mumbled and pinched and tweaked, to hurry me to get at my purse, that I cannot catch hold of it for very tremor. Oh, no, Sir Jasper, no! What she earns, however hardly and however humbly, she thankfully reaps, but she could only submit to accept alms, if bowed down by age, by malady, or by incapacity for work. Yet this spirit is not pride, tis but a strong and refined sense of propriety, since from a friend, in the tender persuasion, that participation of fortune ought to be leagued with participation of sentiment, she would candidly receive whatever would not injure that friend to bestow. "'Divinest of little mortals!' cried Sir Jasper. "'What whimsy is it, what astonishing whimsy of the sisters three, that can have nailed to a counter two such delectable beings, to a pins and needles, and measure tapes and bobbins? And how, beautiful witch, with charms, graces, accomplishments, talents such as yours, how is it you submit to such base drudgery in durance vile, without even making your eye face, without a scowl upon your eyebrow, or a grumble from your throat? Can you look, sir, at her whom you call my partner, and think of me? She has lost her country, she wastes in exile, she sinks in obscurity, she has no communication with her friends, she knows not even whether they yet breathe the vital air. Nevertheless she works, she sustains herself by her industry and ingenuity, and repines only that she has not still another, has not her loved and lovely infant to sustain also. And I, shall I complain? Offspring of a race the most dignified, she toils manually, not to degrade it mentally. And I, shall I blush to owe my subsistence to my exertions? Tears now flowed fast down her cheeks, while the crutches dropped from the feeble hands of the penetrated baronet, whose eyes, dimmed by compassion, were fastened upon the face of the lovely mourner, when Gabriella reappeared. In deep amazement and concern, she hesitated whether she should come forward to offer comfort, or whether, as she now concluded the old gentleman to be some intimate friend, she ought not again to retire. But Juliet entreated her to return to her place. She resumed, therefore, her business of restoring her ribbons to order, dejectedly announcing that nothing had been bought, though everything had been examined, deranged, and tossed about. Sir Jasper, now, courteously waving his hand, smilingly addressed himself to Gabriella, saying, "'Tis my good genius, ma'am, make no doubt of it, that has run away with the feeling of those people you mention. For my good genius, I must beg you to observe, has frequently taken lessons of the god Mercury, and is nearly as adroit in petty larceny as his godship himself. I should not, therefore, wonder, if in his eagerness to serve me, he had pilfered from those poor souls who have used you so ill every grain he could pick up of decency. 
for knowing that ribbons are a commodity of which I want a prodigious stock, he would not suffer your assortment to be diminished, till I had had the pleasure of making my bargains. He then selected the piece of ribbon which seemed the most considerable, and desired to have it measured. Gabriella obeyed, not more amazed than Juliet felt amused. But, when a similar order was given, for ascertaining the quantity of a second piece, and then a third, Juliet, though delighted at the pleased looks of Gabriella, and charmed with the generosity of the baronet, began to apprehend that she might herself be supposed to incur some debt of gratitude for this liberality. She retreated, therefore, with her needlework, to the adjoining little room. In a few minutes she was followed by Gabriella, who, uneasily, asked what she must do with this magnificent old bow, who still, while she measured one piece of ribbon, employed himself in selecting another, and who, though so gallant that he never spoke without a compliment, was so respectful that it was not possible to check him by any serious reproof. Juliet disclaimed taking any share in his present munificence, yet owned that she had an ancient obligation to him that she was unable, at this moment, to repay, and which, from the delicacy with which it had been conferred, and the seasonable relief which it had procured her, would merit her lasting gratitude. He was brother-in-law, she added, to the lady with whom she had lately resided, and he was as rich as he was benevolent. Her scruples, then, Gabriella said, were at an end. Juliet, therefore, begged that she would endeavour to enter into conversation with him concerning Brighthelmstone, and try to obtain some particulars relative to the party at Mrs. Ireton's. "'I began to fear you had flown away, ma'am,' said Sir Jasper, upon Gabriella's re-entrance into the shop, "'and I was much less surprised than concerned.' for I had already surmised that you were an angel, though I had failed to remark your wings. He then put into her hand three more pieces of ribbon, which he had chosen during her absence. Gabriella, who understood English well, though she spoke it imperfectly, made her answers in French. Having now given her ample employment, he sat down to examine, or rather to admire, at his ease, the lightness and grace with which she executed her office, saying, "'You are not, perhaps, aware, madam, that there are certain little beings, nameless and invisible, yet active and penetrating, perpetually hovering around us, who have let me a little into your history, and have taken upon them to assure me that you are not precisely brought up to be a shopkeeper. How, then, is it that you have jumbled, thus together, such heterogeneous materials of existence? Leaguing high birth with low life, superior rank with vulgar employment, and grace, taste, and politeness with common drudgery. How, in short, born and bred to be dangled after by your vassals, and to lollop, the live-long day, upon sofas and armchairs, have you acquired the necessary ingredients for being metamorphosed into a tidy little haberdasher? Gabriella, concluding that her situation had been made known to him by Juliet, answered in a melancholy tone, Is this a period, sir, to consider punctilio? Alas, whence I come, all that are greatest, 
most ancient and most noble, have learnt that self-exertion can alone mark nobility of soul, and that self-dependence only can sustain honour in adversity. Alas, whence I come, the first youth is initiated in the view, if not in the endurance of misfortune. There can be no understanding, or there must be early reflection. There can be no heart, or there must be commiserating sympathy. I protest, ma'am, cried Sir Jasper, looking at her with astonishment. I begin to suspect that I came into the world only this morning, where I may have been rambling all these years, in the persuasion I was in it already. I have by no means any clear notion. But to see two such instances of wisdom and resignation, united with youth and beauty, makes me believe myself in some new region, never yet visited by vice or folly. Ah, sir, the French Revolution has opened our eyes to a species of equality more rational, because more feasible, than that of lands or of rank, an equality not alone of mental sufferings, but of manual exertions. No state of life, however low, or however hard, has been left untried, either by the highest, or by the most delicate, in the various dispersions and desolation of the ancient French nobility. And to see, as I, alas, have seen, the willing efforts, the even glad toil, of the remnants of the first families of Europe, to procure, not luxuries, not elegancies, not even comforts, but maintenance, mean laborious maintenance, to preserve, not state, not fortune, not rank, but life itself, but simple existence. Very wonderful personage, cried Sir Jasper, his air mingling reverence with amazement. And what, unfold to me I beg, what is the necromancy through which you support, under such toils, your intellectual dignity, and strangle in its birth every struggle of false shame? Alas, sir, I have seen guilt. Since then, I have thought that shame belonged to nothing else. The eyes of Sir Jasper were now suffused with tender admiration. Fair deity of the counter, he cried, you are sublime, and she too, your witching little handmaid, by what kind, dulcet chance, new in the annals of misfortune, have two such wonders met? Ah, uh, rather, sir, since you couple us so kindly, rather ask by what adverse chance we have so long been separated. You have known her, then, some time. We were brought up together, the same convent, the same governess, the same instructors, were common to both till my marriage. And now, again, as before that period, I have not the most distant idea of any possible happiness that is not annexed to her presence. Touched to hear the word happiness once again, even though with such sadness, pronounced by Gabriella, yet alarmed at a discourse that might lead, inadvertently, to some secret history, Juliet was returning, to stop any further detail, when, upon Sir Jasper's answering, "'Sweet couple, Lord Denmeath, who ought at least, if I understand right, to take care of one of you, will surely make it his business that you should coo together in the same cage.' She again retreated, anxious to learn what this meant, 
and hoping that he would become more explicit. "'Lord Denmeath!' repeated Gabriella. "'If you know Lord Denmeath, you may be better informed upon this subject than I am myself. Was it at Brighthelmstone that you met with his lordship?' "'It was at Brighthelmstone that I heard of him, and heard that, though wary of speech, he has been incautious in manner, and left little doubt upon the minds of his observers, that this fair flower springs from the same stock as some part of his own family, though she may be one of those sweet but hapless buds whose innocence pays for the guilt of its planter. "'No, sir, no!' Gabriella precipitately interrupted him. "'The birth of my friend is unstained, though unequal. The marriage of her parents was legal, though secret.' Her mother came not, indeed, from an ancient race, but she was a pattern of virtue, as well as a model of beauty. Could it indeed be believed that a young nobleman of such expectations, in every way, as those of the Earl of Melbury's only son, Lord Granville, would have given his hand to the orphan and destitute daughter of an insolvent man of business, had she not possessed every advantage? nay, every perfection to which human nature can arise. Affrightened by this so open relation, drawn forth involuntarily from the nobly ingenious Gabriella, in the persuasion that Sir Jasper was already a confidential, and might become a useful friend, Juliet, in the first moment, was advancing to stop it, but her heart, yet more than her ear, was so fascinated by the generous eulogy of her virtuous, though lowly mother, from the offspring of a house whose height and natal prejudices might have palliated, upon this subject, the language even of disdain, that she could not prevail with herself to break into what she considered as sacred praise. "'Tis even so, then,' cried Sir Jasper, with smiling delight, this forlorn but most beautiful wanderer, this so long concealed and mysterious but most lovely incognita, is the daughter of the late Lord Granville, and the granddaughter of the late Earl of Mulberry. Utterly confounded, to hear the secret history of her birth and family, thus casually, yet irretrievably discovered, Juliet, trembling, again shrunk back, yet would not now, and unavailingly, check the ardent zeal of her high-minded friend, since without any added danger it might procure some useful intelligence. The willing baronet, whose sole desire was to keep up the conversation, wanted no urging to relate all that he had gathered from the loquacious Selina. Lord Denmeath, upon the sudden disappearance of Miss Ellis, had been surprised into confessing that he had a faint notion that he knew something of that young person that there had been once an odd story, a report, that a young woman was existing in France, who was some way belonging to the late Lord Granville, his sister's husband, though without ever having been acknowledged by the family. He let fall also sundry obscure hints of information, of the most serious import, which he had recently received, relating to this young woman, but which he would not divulge, till he had investigated, as he began to surmise, that it had been conveyed to him for some fraudulent and mercenary purpose. Mrs. Ireton, to all this, 
had answered that she had suspected, from the beginning, that the creature was an adventurer, and that she was now fully convinced that they had been played upon by a supposititious person. Lord Denmeath, though he forbore confirming this assertion, listened to it with a smile of concurrence. Juliet here felt shocked and confounded, but Gabriella, animated by generous resentment, warmly repeated her asseverations of the validity of the marriage of Lord Granville with Miss Powell, her friend's mother, though an excess of fear of the inflexible character of the old Earl Melbury had prevented its early avowal, and the death of the concealed wife, while Juliet was yet in arms, had afterwards decided the young widower to guard the secret, till his child should be grown up, or till he should become his own master. "'But where, during this interval,' said Sir Jasper, "'where and what was the hiding-place of that seraphic offspring?' Till her seventh year, Gabriella answered, she had been consigned to the care of Mrs. Powell, her maternal grandmother, who, satisfied of the legality, had herself aided the secrecy of the marriage. They had dwelt during that period, in the same picturesque, but no longer loved retreat, upon the banks of the Tyne, in which Lady Granville, under a feigned name, had been concealed, for the short space of time between her marriage and her death. Juliet, whose intention had been to gather, not to bestow intelligence, now came forward, and made signs to Gabriella to drop the subject. But this was no longer practicable. Urged by the idea of doing honour to her friend, and incited by adroit interrogatories, or piquant observations from Sir Jasper, Gabriella, having insensibly begun the tale, felt irresistibly impelled to make clear the birth and family of Juliet, beyond all doubt or cavil. She continued, therefore, the narration, and Juliet, much agitated, retreated wholly to the inner room. Under the pretense of change of air for his health, Lord Granville, to hide his grief from his father and friends, spent the first year of his widowhood at Montpellier, then the residence of the Bishop of the maternal uncle of Gabriella, with whom he formed a friendship that neither time nor absence, not even death itself, had had power to dissolve, and to whom he confided the history and punishment of his clandestine juvenile engagement. Called home the following year by the earl, his father, he had been prevailed upon to marry a lady of quality and large fortune. But, previous to these new nuptials, to secure justice to his eldest-born, though he had not the courage to own her, as well as to tranquillize Mrs. Powell, he deposited in the hands of that worthy old lady the certificate of his first marriage, to which he added a deed, that he called the codicil to whatever will he might have made, or might hereafter make, and in which he declared Juliet Granville, born near, in Yorkshire, to be his lawful daughter, by his first marriage, with Juliet Powell, in Flanders, and, as such, he bequeathed to her the same portion, at his death, that should have been settled upon any other daughter, or daughters, that he might have, hereafter, by any subsequent marriage. The impossibility of obtaining, in the Yorkshire retirement, such means of improvement, 
as were suitable to the future expectations and lot in life of his little girl, determined Lord Granville to have her conveyed to France for her education. Mrs. Powell, who had no other remaining tie upon earth, but a son who was settled in the East Indies, preferred accompanying her little darling to a separation, the fear of which, with the possession of the marriage certificate and the codicil to the will, had always counteracted her impatience for the discovery ultimately promised. The uncle of Gabriella, the bishop, consented to take the child under his immediate care, and to place her in the convent in which his sister, the Marchioness of, had placed his niece. And here the children had been brought up together, with the same opportunities of improvement, except that the little Juliet had the advantage of speaking English with her grandmother, who knew no other language, and who entered the convent as a pensioner. By this means, and by books, Juliet had perfectly retained her native tongue, though she had acquired something of a foreign accent. She was known only as a young English lady of fortune, for whom no expense was to be spared and the remittances for her board and education were constant, and even splendid. She had been called simply by the name of Mademoiselle Juliette, which had generally been supposed to be the name of her family. Here, from the facility with which she caught instruction, and the ability with which she appropriated its result, she became the most accomplished pupil of the convent, and was not more generally, from her appearance, called La Belle, than from her acquirements and conduct, La Sage Petite Anglaise. And here, still more united by the same sentiments than by the same studies, Gabriella had formed with her the tender, confiding, and unalterable friendship that had bound them to each other with an even sisterly love. The bishop frequently pressed the young lord to avow the birth of Juliet, and to legitimate her claims upon his family. But he always answered, that since she, whose reputation, happiness, and spirits might have paid the avowal, was gone, he could not support the fruitless pain of offending his sickly but imperious father by such a discovery, till the necessity of receiving his daughter should make it indispensable. Previous to this period, Gabriella was taken from the convent, to prepare for her marriage with the Comte de and Juliet, who had then lost her tender grandmother, was invited to the wedding ceremony, and to remain with her friend till she should be called to her own country. Lord Granville, with that spirit of procrastination which always grows with indulgence, joyfully acceded to this invitation, and remitted to the ensuing summer the public acknowledgment of his daughter. But, ere the ensuing summer arrived, all these projects were rendered abortive. The bishop, through a newspaper, received the fatal intelligence that Lord Granville had been killed by a fall from his horse. While the deeply disappointed and afflicted Juliet was the prey of heavy grief at this event, the bishop, to whom the grandmother, in dying, had consigned the marriage certificate, the codicil, and every letter or paper that authenticated the legitimacy of her grandchild, constituted himself guardian and protector of the young orphan. Convinced that no time should be lost in making known her rights, 
yet unwilling to risk shocking the old peer by an abrupt address, he stated the affair to Lord Denmeath, brother to Lord Granville's second lady, and guardian of two children by the second marriage. To this communication he received no answer, but upon writing again, with more energy, and hinting at sending over an agent, Lord Denmeath thought proper to reply. His style was extremely cold. His brother-in-law, he said, had expired after his fall without uttering a word. Having, therefore, no knowledge of any secret business, he begged to be excused from entering into a discussion of the obscure affair to which the bishop seemed to allude. The bishop grew but warmer in the interests of his ward from the difficulty of serving her. He sent over, to Lord Denmeath, copies of the codicil, of the certificate, and of every letter upon the subject that had been written to the grandmother, or to himself, by the late lord. The answer now was more civil, but evidently embarrassed, though professing much respect for the motives which guided the charitable bishop, and a willingness to enter into some compromise for the young person in question, provided she could be settled abroad that so strange a tale might not disturb his sister, nor involve his nephew and niece, by coming before the public. All compromise was declined by the bishop, who now made known the whole history to the old peer. The answer, nevertheless, was again from Lord Denmeath, though written by the desire and in the name of the earl, briefly saying, Let the young woman marry and settle in France and upon the delivery of the original documents relative to her birth she shall be portioned, but she shall never be received nor owned in England, the Earl being determined not to countenance such a disgrace to his family, and to the memory of his son, as the acknowledgment of so unsuitable a marriage. The bishop held his honour engaged to his departed friend, to sustain the birthright of the innocent orphan. He menaced, therefore, accompanying her over to England himself, and putting all the documents, with the direction of the affair, into the hands of some celebrated lawyer. Alarmed at this intimation, milder letters passed, but the result of all that the bishop could obtain was a promissory note of six thousand pounds sterling, for the portion of a young person brought up at the convent of, and known by the name of Mademoiselle Juliette to be paid by Monsieur Bankers on the day of her marriage with a native of France, resident in that country. The conditions annexed to the payment were then detailed, of delivering to the bankers the original of all the MSS, of which copies had been sent over, with an acquittal signed by the new-married couple, and by the bishop, to all future right or claim upon the Milbury family the whole to be properly witnessed, etc. This promissory note had the joint seal and signature of the old earl and of Lord Denmeath. But the bishop inflexibly insisted that his ward should be recognized as the Honourable Miss Granville, and share an equal portion with her half-sister Aurora, for whom, upon the premature death of Lord Granville, the old peer had solicited and obtained the title and honours of an earl's daughter. All representation proving fruitless, the bishop was preparing to attend Miss Granville to England, when the French Revolution broke out. 
the general confusion first stopped his voyage, and next destroyed even the materials of his agency. The family chateau was burnt by the populace, and all the papers of Juliet, which had been carefully hoarded up with the records of the house, were consumed. The promissory note alone, and accidentally, had been saved, the bishop chancing to have it in his pocket-book, for the purpose of consulting upon it with some lawyer. With the nobleness of unsuspicious integrity, the bishop wrote an account of this disaster to Lord Denmeath, whose answer contained tidings of the death of the old earl, and reclaimed the promissory note for revisal. But the bishop, who possessed no other proof or document of the identity of Juliet, would by no means part with a paper that became of the utmost importance. Juliet, pitied and sustained, loved and esteemed by all, had been prevailed upon to continue with her cherished and cherishing friends, till some political calm should enable the bishop to conduct her to England, and there to struggle for her rights. At the opening, however, of the dreadful reign of Robespierre, sudden and immediate danger had compelled Gabriella, with her husband and her child, to emigrate. But Juliet, hopeless of making herself acknowledged by her family without the support of the bishop, had preferred, till she could obtain the sanction of his presence, to remain with the marchioness. "'And what?' Sir Jasper cried. "'What is become of this bishop, this man of peace, this worthiest white that breathes the vital air?' Gabriella herself knew not, nor what change of plan had induced her friend to venture over alone. She knew only that what was counselled by the bishop must be wise, that what was executed by Juliet must be right. Juliet, who had heard this recital with melting tenderness, was now with difficulty restrained, even by the presence of Sir Jasper, from casting herself rather at the feet than into the arms, of her generous, noble, and confiding, though untrusted friend. End of chapter 69 Recording by Roxana Nazari